Well, I have a few questions that were written, and we can also just take some this evening. <clears throat> For the coming days and weeks, we will be engaging in much planning and problem-solving again. Is it possible and or advisable to remain mindful during these processes <laughs> without sacrificing much effectiveness or efficiency of the planning and problem-solving? What would that look like? Uh, so I think there are two, uh, two different arenas of planning and problem solving. One we might call uh, just creative association. You know, when there's a, a general problem or something we're working on and we don't quite yet know, you know, which way to go or what the solution is or the resolution. And we're just uh, sitting with or being with an open mind and almost um, free associating. You know, and just seeing what comes with regard to that particular situation. And in this regard, I found, and I think you've probably experienced it too, that the quieter the mind is, the more silence in mind, actually the more t intuitive it is. You know, it's not so much just repeating old patterns, but as we quiet down, it's like intuitions come from a deeper place. So I think with some life situations where we need to resolve something, it can be helpful to give ourselves the time to just, you know, abide in the silence and to see what comes, you know, to see what possibilities present themselves. So that's, that's a little different than what we've been doing in the formal practice, but I think it's a useful application, you know, of the quiet that we have cultivated. Then there's the aspect of planning or problem solving when we actually have a sense of the direction we want to go in, you know, of what we want to do, and it takes some planning, you know, to do it. So that's fine, that, there's no problem in doing that, and we can be somewhat mindful that the planning is going on, even as it's happening, mindful enough so that we know that the planning is happening in the present moment. So we're not so totally lost in it that we're actually living in that future mind bubble. Do you see the difference? When the planning is happening now as a thought and it's a necessary and often useful process, but can we stay grounded enough in our awareness that this is present moment planning? You might want to modulate the strength or intensity of the mindfulness at that time, because if like you're over-mindful, you might just find the words disappearing in the mind. You know, it's like trying to read a book with a high degree of mindfulness. It doesn't, you'll just start seeing black and white, <laughs> you know. And Munindraji had a very good uh, <coughs> recommendation with regard to engaging with conceptual processes you know, when they're necessary, whether it's reading or planning. He, he used the term, it's what he called general mindfulness. That is enough mindfulness just to be aware if unwholesome mind states should arise in the process. Right? So we're not having that exact moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness that we've been working on you know, in the retreat. It's a more general sense where we're engaged on the conceptual level because that's what's called for at that time. Whether it's reading or some kind of work or planning, we're actually engaged with the conceptual level, but we're not totally lost in it. Then we're kind of keeping an eye out. Is the mind staying wholesome or are there unwholesome qualities arising? 
there are two other aspects that came to mind with this question <coughs> that have been really helpful for me in uh, working skillfully with the planning mind because you know, for myself and I think for most of you, especially when you'll be leaving here, uh, often we are thinking about things that may be happening, you know, in a week or a month or in a year, you know, that we need to plan for. One of the things I found very helpful is just to assess, is this the time to be planning for that? Because it's very possible, and I think we do this a lot, especially if there's some anxiety about what needs to be done, we can be thinking about it way before it really needs to be thought about. You know, and I've just learned, because, you know, sometimes my schedule is planned two years in advance, and it's like, live in the present. <laughs> <laughs> but what I've learned is I just, don't, I just don't think about things until they need to be thought about. And that, I have found, has really made a lot of space in my mind. One signal that we're thinking about it too early is when you've had the same planning thought 17 times. <laughs> then you know, it's just the mind, it's just the mind getting lost in that pattern. And it's not, it's not that helpful, it's not that anything new is arising. So these are just, you know, some of the ways uh, that we can and need to engage with this aspect of the mind, especially as you'll be leaving the retreat. You know, a lot of life situations are going to call for some planning, for some thought, uh, for some creativity. Um, don't overlook what I mentioned earlier in terms of, especially with, with more significant issues in your life, to give yourself the quiet time and the, the silent time, the inner silent time, to allow the creative intuitive process uh, to unfold, uh, because it's really powerful. This afternoon's discussion uh, something on, about equanimity practice was way too short and left me feeling anything but equanimous. <laughs> I, had I had sympathy for Annie. <laughs> Could you talk about equanimity and societal injustice? and our responsibility to act. Okay, so this is uh, a big question, an important one. It really has to do with refining our understanding and experience of what equanimity means. Because the connotation of the word, you know, in English, can often be misleading. And this is actually highlighted in the, in the Buddhist texts, you know, where it talks about the near enemy of equanimity being indifference. That is something that looks or feels a bit like equanimity, but actually is not. And so when we hear about equanimity just in our general language and in our lives, unless we're really careful and attentive to the deeper meaning, uh, we may fall into uh, that trap of thinking, oh, equanimity means we don't do anything, we're just placid, indifferent, complacent. None of that is equanimity. So it's important to watch the mind to see if it's falling in uh, to that side of things. Equanimity does not imply inaction. You know, and I think in the talk uh, I gave last week about understanding the nature of the mind, 
and that quality of it being ceaselessly responsive, you know, to the degree that our minds are free from self-centeredness, this activity of responsiveness, the activity of compassion, uh, flows naturally. We could say that compassionate response is the activity of emptiness, is the activity of selflessness. So the quality of equanimity, and this, this takes a lot of exploration as, as you practice it both, perhaps the formal meditation practice, but even more just watching, you know, in different situations in your life, Notice when the mind is reactive and when it's equanimous. And equanimity in this sense, it means impartial. And I like that description of it because it suggests the impartiality of space. Space holds everything equally or the sun shines on everything equally. In that sense, we could say the sun is equanimous with respect to where it lands. It's impartiality suggests non-reactivity of mind. It does not imply non-responsiveness. And in fact, the more impartial we are, meaning just open to the totality of what is going on, whether it's internally, in our mind and body, or in society, in the world, to the degree that the mind is impartial and not getting caught up in our own inner reactivity, then we're able to actually see with greater clarity what response will be the most compassionate and the most effective in any situation. And part of, part of this note also commented about how some of the people she knew who, he or she, I'm not sure, um, were most equanimous were people engaged in social action on the front lines and at the same time that some of the people who were most burned out were people engaged, you know, on the front lines of social action. And I think it really points to this quality of coming to this level of social engagement to the degree that we can come to it with less reactivity, we have the inner resources to actually sustain our energy, to sustain our effort. You know, if we're being, if our actions are being fueled by anger, or fueled by hatred, or fueled by self-righteousness, it's not sustainable. We burn ourselves out, we burn ourselves up. To the degree that the mind is impartial like space, can hold the whole situation, can see the whole situation, can see what needs to be done, and we proceed from a place of connectedness and compassion, then the response, the the power of the response is is limitless. And you you think of just the, the very great beings you know, who have effected tremendous social change in the world. You know, beings like, you know, Nelson Mandela, or Martin Luther King Jr., or Gandhi, or people who were confronting huge society issues of injustice, but who were not consumed by anger and hatred. And I think that's what gave their movements and their actions and their beings so much power. There's one other little aspect that's, I think, worth noticing, particularly since you've been doing, to some extent, the Brahma-vihara meditation. It's exactly the quality of equanimity 
which gives all the others their boundless nature. Because if we were filled with reactivity, what happens when you start sending metta to a difficult person? You know, or you start sending compassion to somebody who's doing something harmful. It becomes impossible. Our own reactivity is limiting the extent, the pervasiveness of our metta or compassion. We can give it this far, but not this much. And it's precisely equanimity, just that impartiality, which allows us to extend metta and compassion (coughs) and mudita boundlessly. And (coughs) that's the great power of these practices. And that's why they're called the immeasurables. So again, I just want to emphasize, I hope it's clear that this quality of mind in no way implies inaction. It does not imply complacency. It actually gives us the capacity to respond in a helpful and healing way. Maybe. One at a time. Stop right there. Maybe towards the faith, it's just surrendering, and towards the wisdom, it's just, and that's like the whole spectrum of possibilities between the two, and the same with. I think that there was a. a time on the schedule for these next in these next few days uh, for purchasing books. <laughs> it's all in my book. <laughs> but just briefly, because that, you know that's that's a whole three-month course worth of discourses. Uh, but it, it is interesting. You know, at different times, and also for different of you. Some people's minds work in this way and others don't particularly. <coughs> yeah, sorry. The, the question was, um, if I could map out the spectrum of response, or the, the spectrum of understanding uh, the balance between faith and wisdom and um, energy and concentration. Because those are the two pairs that need to be balanced, and it's mindfulness that balances them. You know, and these five spiritual faculties are, in some way, they can be understood as the very essence of what we're cultivating. I think just in our practice, the mindfulness can show us uh, if there's too much faith, it can kind of lead to uh, just a blind belief in everything, and we're not we're not really looking, we're not really investigating, you know. And so we can get uh, just lost in being carried along in a certain way without necessarily learning anything. Right. If this, so it needs to be balanced by investigation. It's like we're being mindful for a purpose. So mindfulness itself is not the end. 
So the question really to ask ourselves always is, what am I learning by being mindful? Am I learning anything? Right? And, and so that arouses the investigation factor. But sometimes our minds can get overly investigating. We're always, okay, what am I learning? And what does this mean? And, you know, we're just digging all the time. So that's, that's when we're over, too much over on the investigation side and we actually need to balance it with more trust. And as we talked in the interview, just that quality of surrender to the process and letting it unfold as a balance to, to that over-investigation. I think I mentioned in the hall at one point, uh, in one interview with Sairo Pandita, and I was giving a very detailed description of my experience, and he just said to me, Joseph, you're too attached to subtlety. <laughs> you know, and it was such a good and perceptive remark, and it just highlighted because my mind has a tendency to over-investigate. And I didn't even realize that that itself was a kind of craving, you know, a wanting. And so it just, oh yeah, just settle back, let it unfold. Um, so it's, it's just to look in your own experience, you know, between those two extremes and to begin to balance, you know, if you feel of on one side or the other. And I think the, the balance between concentration and energy may be a little more obvious uh, you know, if there's too much concentration, it can tend to uh, sleepiness, a kind of sinking mind. We're, we're still, we're not restless, but, you know, it's kind of a heavy dullness of mind if there's not enough energy to balance it. So if we're aware of that state, then we need to do something which arouses energy. And the opposite, sometimes if there's too much energy, we're just it's all restlessness. And so then we need to strengthen the concentration. So I think that oh, this is all stuff that I'm sure you've heard over these last months. Um, I'd like to, I'd like it if you could talk about skillfully and wisely sharing with uh, people in our lives, like family members and friends, um, especially in maybe a moment where they seem to potentially come into uh, like an opportunity of openness. Mm -hmm. If there's just a little window to, to give them, what would you give to the person in that, in that moment? <laughs> okay, so the question was uh, about how to skillfully share or communicate the Dharma, especially with friends or family or people one is close to, particularly in those moments when it feels like there is a real opening, you know, where they may really be expressing an interest and you feel you know, that there's a real possibility there. So I'm glad you, you added that little addendum because uh, the first thing, and you're going to find this a lot when you go out, people are going to ask how your retreat is and they are not going to be interested in your knee pain. <laughs> and they may not be interested really at all, you know, and it <laughs> might be just a way of saying hello. So you, you really have to assess, you know, and not in your enthusiasm, kind of give them a three-hour wrap on anatta. <laughs> the temptation will be there, you know, because there is a lot of, you know, you're filled with dharma energy at this point. So it's, so, <laughs> be a little careful. But when you feel that the opening is actually there. Um, I guess there are two things which I've learned, you know, over, over many years of teaching now. Um, early on, 
when I, when I first started teaching, in thinking about people coming, you know, in a day of interviews, I would sometimes, in thinking about them, I would kind of have in mind what I was going to say. And over the years, I've just totally let that go, you know, and let it arise intuitively in the moment from what presents itself. So there's no pre, there's no agenda. Uh, because if we come, if we're going with an agenda of what we want to say or what we want to communicate, we're not going to be really connecting with where they are in the moment. And that's where the communication happens. And that's one of the things I love so much about you know, doing interviews and just this whole teaching gig. It's just, you know, it's, I call it, I call them the, it's the 15 minute marriage, <laughs> which really suits me. <laughs> <laughs> it's just about right. <laughs> but as you know, you know, it's just, it really is a very intimate space, you know, and kind of we're, we're just sharing an openness, just as you say. And the, the juice is in the connection with where a person actually is at that moment. Right? And you can't, you can't plan for that, but you can be open to hearing it, you know? And then I would just trust, and I would just, okay, what comes in that moment from the place of connection, not from the place of wanting to educate or wanting to no, no agenda. It's just from the place of connection. What follows, and I think that that's really a much more creative and meta-filled space. Um, again, if if I mentioned this story before, just stop me. <laughs> it's hard to remember over these months, you know what's been what's been said. But I had I had a really interesting. Uh, experience just when I came back from India in the early years and I spent some time at home uh, before doing whatever I ended up doing. Uh, so I was living with my mother and she was very supportive of, of all the time I was in India. She was, it was really great. Uh, and she's a very, uh, she was a very strong woman who had lots of ideas about things, <laughs> and was a little bit on the judgmental side, even at, not about this. You know, she was really supportive about the practice. But when I was with her, you know, I just kept seeing that side which was causing, I could see the suffering that was causing her. You know, that, those kind of mind states, as we all know from ourselves. You know, if the mind is, is really judgmental, or, it's not a it's not a pleasant mind state, and so for quite a while I was always trying to unhook her from that to you know to have her see that, and it didn't work at all. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it took me quite a while, and I, I I came up with what on the surface is a very non-Buddhist understanding, but deeper down it is, but on the surface it may not seem so, I realized that she's probably not going to change. <laughs> you know, and when I realized that, you know, okay, you know, she, she's been living like this for so long and nothing I say is going to all of a sudden wipe out, you know, seven decades of uh, patterning. But what was interesting, when I, when I just acknowledged that, I let go of wanting her to be different. You know? And it was amazing. Because that was, the, that was the first time, genuinely, of just accepting her exactly as she was. You know, with all her great qualities and with all the difficult qualities. It was just, yeah, that's, that's who she is. 
And it was amazing to see the energetic difference in our being together and in the communication. And I hadn't realized that before that there was always, in my communication, there was always a, you know, it's, it's just that, <laughs> that's like pushing against. So of course, when we're being pushed against, what's our normal reaction? To create some kind of defensiveness. It's, it's, it's kind of a natural pattern. When I stopped that pushing, that defensiveness came down and then there was much more openness, you know, to different kinds of communication. It was, it was a powerful lesson for me of seeing how we have to really become accepting. And it's a very meta-filled space, that acceptance. You know, it's just taking in the wholeness of a person. You know, the difficult parts and the easy part, yeah. This is all fine. And in that, that's where the connection and communication can happen. No parties for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. What to do in social situations? You know, you're going to be out in the world, and depending on your age, you'll be either be in a lot of parties. <laughs> At home watching TV. <laughs> but in the former particularly, you know, you might see this whole range of a lot of defilements and, you know, a lot, lot's going on very quickly. You don't have the particular stillness that you might have on retreat to really track it all. It's not that difficult, really. And um, that you could just make one big frame for the whole mind state, rubbish. <laughs> you know, you don't have to track every little thing within it. And as long as that frame of rubbish is there, I'd err on the quiet side. You know, because a lot of the defilements really become powerful and harmful when we're giving expression to them. There's a, as you well know, and perhaps one of the most important insights you've all had over these weeks and months is that you can't control what's arising in the mind. Right? Things are coming out of different causes and conditions, so all of these defilements are going to be there, especially in those kinds of situations. But we can really be mindful uh, of our speech and actions. You know? And so when you're aware that they're there, even in that general sense, I would be watchful you know, and not giving voice. Uh, the practice of right speech is one of the most powerful parts of the path to bring out into the world. You know, it's just... Of the ten unwholesome actions the Buddha said to avoid, four of them have to do with speech. You know, so this, this is not an insignificant part of our path. It, it's as significant as the work you're doing here on retreat. And the arena for that work is precisely being out in the world where we are communicating. 
so that's and it's also if there's enough mindfulness to see what's going on in your mind even though it's not you're not tracking it carefully you know i think hopefully you've developed some skill at uh changing channels you know if you see whatever this whatever kind of unwholesome patterns are there and there's enough mindfulness to see it even if it's not with tremendous clarity you know you might change to the metta channel change to the mudita channel uh, and that's one of the great gifts of mindfulness we enough mindfulness to see and then not the meaning of mindfulness is remembering what's wholesome and what's unwholesome and remember yeah I'll just click the remote here and social situations like that are are it's just a fantastic arena for practice and challenging the the i think one of the the important things to remember and one that's difficult to remember is not to be carried away in the unskillful energy of others you know because we can't control the people around us and their minds and what they're doing or what they're saying and in a social situation you know especially as you described so easy to get caught up you know in the group energy but we don't have to you know we can really retain a sense of groundedness and center and wisdom in the midst of it now yeah, it's in a few days time <laughs> you're going to have a blast <laughs> you know it's like bringing everything you learned you know which significant it was so beautiful in the groups and in my group and I heard from the others too this morning it was just so beautiful and inspiring to hear you know what you have seen and understood in these months it's profound it's really profound you know and then okay how how do we bring this to our life in the world hmm. Can you discuss the phrase the greatest magic is transmuting the passions particularly in relation as it relates to the transmutation of sexual energy desire and the third precept and uh, there's another question about the power of sexual energy and sexual passion and uh, how to deal with it and, and how on retreat uh even in this kind of context it can be a hugely powerful force and even more so outside when there's so much stimulation so there's a lot to say about this um, i guess the first thing which was for me a very interesting discovery uh you know about sexual energy was as the practice deepens and we begin to get a sense of the body as an energy field you know when we go past kind of the outer form of the body or the body is something solid and you know as the mindfulness and concentration deepens somewhat we really begin to feel what we call the body as just a field of you could say a field of energy a field of vibrations field of different sensations so what was very interesting to me was to realize that in some way it's a unified field but it will be felt differently depending on where our attention is you know so if our attention to this field of energy you know is in our sexual chakras 
So it's going to be felt as sexual energy, you know, and we all know what that is and the power of it and the seductiveness is powerful. It's, you know, the pleasantness of it is hugely seductive. But then I began to notice, yeah, if I just moved my energy up, for example, to the heart center, so it's the same field, it's the same, it's the same energy going through the body, but then it's felt in a different way. So it doesn't have the feeling of kind of that sexual passion. It has more of the heartful energy. And so just to play with how we feel this energy system, depending on where we're putting our attention. This just helps, this understanding and this ability to play with it in that way begins to loosen, uh, to some extent, the, the power of the grip of the seduction, you know, of the sexual energy, which is primal, you know, it's just, this goes, it's hardwired in us. So it's very, very powerful, and it's what propagates the species, and it's what you know keeps all of samsara going. So it's not an insignificant, it's not an insignificant part of our experience. So first, we begin to see, yeah, this is just one manifestation or one aspect of a more unified energetic system. So then the question arises: Okay. When the sexual energy is there, when that passion is there, what's the appropriate way of relating to it? And of course, that very much depends. Um, there are different ways of framing it, but you could say it very much depends on the level of precepts that we've taken. You know, and for monastics, for example, you know, the, the precept is to refrain from all sexual activity. For people on retreat, we take that precept for a period of time. For lay people, you know, in the world, it's to refrain from harmful sexual behavior. So, so what we do with the energy is different depending on which level of precepts we're committed to. In all of those cases, there's still the challenge of when it arises, and it's so seductive, and so powerful, how do we work with it in terms of mindfulness, in terms of our uh, understanding and meditation? And I'm sure you have experimented with this a lot, many of you, you know, over these months. And I've just learned, you know, a whole array of different skillful means. Um, First, just in, in the world, when you go out into the world, and if you're on the lay precept, you really have to pay attention to motivation and is this harmful or not? Is this going to be harmful to myself or others? So, really need to be very clear about that. Because, as you all know, I mean, the, the, the media and world literature and is filled with crimes of passion. You know, pe people do things in the throes of this passion that are very unskillful, cause a lot of harm. Uh, in relationships, um, so we, we really need to be mindful enough to ask that question you know, before we act. I think I mentioned earlier on, Saito Upandita was giving a talk about all this, and you know, he went on and on and on for a long time, and the translator said just one short phrase in translation of everything Saito said. He said, lust cracks the brain. <laughs> <laughs> and it does. You know, it's like it makes us crazy. It can make us crazy, <laughs> because it's so powerful. 
So we, we need to acknowledge this. We need to acknowledge this side of our being. Um, in meditation, it's possible to learn a lot of ways, both to see it clearly, to be with it, to be with it in a mindful way, from a place of balance in which we have the ability to choose, okay, is this something to act on? Is this appropriate? Is it not appropriate? So one of the great things I hope you learned in your time here, because it comes up a lot, not only with sexual desire, but with any desire, if we're mindful, if we can stay mindful, we realize that by itself, it will arise and pass away. But I think we often bring the attitude with desire, really of any kind, but particularly perhaps with sexual desire, I think we're often in the mindset, I'm either suppressing it or expressing it. But those are the two choices. You know, unless I express it, it means I'm suppressing it. But what we see in practice is, no, there's a, there's a big middle way there where we're feeling it, we're being with it, we're not acting on it, and we're just watching it and watching it and watching it. And we see that by itself, it goes away because everything is impermanent. We don't have to do anything about it. So that's a huge insight. The impermanence of desire and to really see that. That gives us a lot more confidence, at least at times. We're going to get caught a lot. But at least at times we see that. You know, I think I mentioned to you earlier in terms of working with kind of the images that create or or condition lust uh, in the mind or that strong desire to really to really be noting that sense of contact and pleasant. You remember? You know, it's just so right with that image or that thought, we're right there in the moment of con- contact, pleasant, and it can help to unhook the mind. Another note that I found really helpful. And this is this is particularly on retreat where, you know, our our intention is not to act on it. Just when these, when lustful thoughts would arise, a desire which is very enticing. I think that's what we have to acknowledge. There's there's great power. They pull us right into it because they're energizing and they're so pleasurable. But on retreat, you know, going through it just a million times, I started putting up the sign, dead end. (laughs) You know, as soon as it would arise, I'm at a dead end. Knowing it's not going anyplace on retreat, hopefully. <laughs> you know, and so instead of kind of going down that whole road, lost in the whole desire and lost in the whole fantasy, and then half an hour later, shh, okay, you know, back to the body, back to the breath. If I can remember right in the moment, this is a dead end, I don't have to go down the road. And it just helps the mind to unhook. Um, yeah, so I'm. This is something that, that requires a lot of attentiveness um, because it is so powerful, it can so easily lead to harmful actions, uh, but it can also be, especially in the context of a lay life, you know, be part of a beautiful expression of a loving relationship. Um, so it's, it's an important arena, it's not outside the practice. Mm-hmm. to any 
and now I wonder whether I actually should be making an active choice to place my mind in a certain way, which is kind of like what I've heard the Buddha say not to do. And how does that fit mm-hmm. with my practice? Okay, so the question or the comment was uh, that a lot of society's message, you know, the, the worldly lay society, is that it's better, it's healthier, it's more appropriate to actually be in an intimate relationship. Uh, and that somehow it's not such a good idea, right, uh, to not be. And, you know, she had the experience of being a monastic for many, many years, uh, living that life and feeling fulfilled in it, and yet coming out of that life now is wondering, well, should I put myself in the situation, you know, of that kind of intimate sexual relations? Um, I can speak to this very directly uh, just from one particular perspective, and there's no one answer to that. I think we do need to be careful about believing all the messages of society, because clearly these messages are not coming from the Buddha mind. (laughs) And so... I think for all of us, as we engage on the Dharma path, it's a lot of experimentation. So just, just, a, just a, little, a little bit of my personal, <laughs> personal life. So I spent most of my 20s in Asia, uh, first in the Peace Corps and then in India, and doing mostly intensive practice. And I, wasn't, I didn't have any interest at all in being in relationships. I came back when I was 30, and between 30 and 40, uh, I had that same, that same sense and the same you know, message. Oh, yeah, this, is, this is something worth exploring and getting into. And so in those years, I did that, and I just explored different kinds of relationships. At 40, things seem to go in decades, um, <laughs> And uh, keep in mind that I am only speaking for myself. I'm not suggesting that this is appropriate for anybody else. We all need to discover this for ourselves. But for myself, at 40, I had this major realization that I was actually happier being out of relationship than being in. And for me, that was a huge relief to come to that understanding because then I could stop you know, thinking that I should be or should be looking or whatever. And it, so it was kind of just, oh yeah, this, this is what feels right for me and brings you know, a kind of happiness in my mind. So that's all to say we... It's not about, or trying not to be so conditioned by the messages of society and convention, because in our practice, in our you know, understanding of our own hearts and minds, we come to see for ourselves what is conducive to our happiness. You know? And for different people it will be different. That's why I'm saying I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is the prescription for anybody. But we need to discover it for ourselves, not just to kind of be carried on the wave of society's conditioning. Perhaps uh, going back a little bit to the uh, question on equanimity, something that uh, I kind of noticed is that in, uh, in the phrases that we used yesterday, normally there is a different in a way that we are, we're not kind of wishing so much the equanimity. It's practically the equanimity is a state that is attained. 
and then you realize almost like this, we are all owners of our actions. It's more kind of in that level of realization instead of may you be. Mm. So, I don't know if you can talk a little bit about that. Is mm. Because in that way, it felt that if there are the four Brahma-Vihara, equanimity is the thing practically you have to work in a different way, not just by wishing mm-hmm. or by wishing to have it. Mm-hmm. It's practically you yeah, realize yeah. it. Or yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's an interesting question. You know, in the, in the f- traditional phrases of equanimity, it's quite different than... Uh, the phrases of the other Brahma Viharas in that in the others we're saying, may you be happy or healthy or you know, may your success increase, may you be free of suffering. But in equanimity it's not it's not so much a wish. The phraseology of the meditation is not so much a wish for the other person to be equanimous as a reminder to be equanimous oneself. You know what's more contained in the phrase. Uh, I, s- I, I think that's, that's to some extent true, and it, it does feel a little bit different. But I see the equanimity phrases um, you know, and we can each find the words that resonate for us. Just as with all the others, certain phrases might really connect with us, other phrases may not. But I see each repetition of whatever phrase we're using as basically an offering to the person of the gift of wisdom. You know, we're saying, you know, you know, all beings are the inheritors you know, of their actions. And we can see this not in some kind of mechanistic way or because often questions come up, you know, just in that phrase, well, you know, what about little kids who are suffering? and How are they? What does that have to do? Um, But I see it more kind of more generally accessible when we think of our lives, especially having watched our minds for all these weeks and months, we can see that if there are unwholesome states of mind, the immediate karma of that is suffering. You know, so it's not, it's not kind of just about some far-off result that's going to happen, we're experiencing in ourselves, in our own hearts and minds, the fruit of what is cultivated. You know, and if we're cultivating love, and we're cultivating kindness, and we're cultivating generosity, the karmic result of that, in our own experience, will be peace. And will be happiness. If un- knowingly or unmindfully, we're spending our lives cultivating greed and cultivating hatred and cultivating delusion, the karmic consequence of that in ourselves. Forgetting anything about external. It's just in ourselves. We're creating an inner environment of difficulty, of suffering. And so the equanimity phrase is basically saying, pay attention to what's being cultivated. Right? And so that's, that's what I mean, as in, in whatever phrase we use, and maybe that's the phrase. <laughs> it's like offering, offering that gift of wisdom to whoever we're sending it to. So that's one way. Um, yeah. Okay, last question. <laughs> Yes. Uh, I'll post his name on the board, and if you just Google, we're so fortunate. (laughs) Google knows everything. (laughs) 
<laughs> this he has a website and there are some links to the chanting and yeah yeah uh, so I hope today was uh, both a little bit of fun, not too <laughs> agitating. Um, I'd really suggest, uh, if you have the energy, to spend some quiet time tonight, just to do some walking and sitting, you know, before you go to sleep. And, you know, in all of this contact, after so many weeks of non-contact, just the body absorbs all this energy. You know, and so just to give yourself time to kind of let it wash through and everything to settle, uh, you'll feel you'll feel a lot better. Um, so have a good night.